Hello, and welcome to his Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about the fourth in the five-part film series, Small Axe. Mm-hmm. This one's called Alex Wheatle. Yes. And it's about a man called Alex Wheatle, <laughs> who's a real person. Yes. Um, he's got an MBE. He's a young adult novelist. Um, and this talks about his upbringing. He was born in 63. Mm. And this talks about his upbringing in sort of children's homes, orphanages, and then his move to Brixton. And his kind of... Interestingly, like a, it's an assimilation of someone who is not does not kind of embody, I guess, what you would expect of uh, kind of Black Britain in a sense. It's Maybe a, that's quite stereotypical. It's an assimilation story in reverse. Hmm. Yeah, I, this young kid goes through the uh, British care system uh, in the sixties and seventies, and then finds himself in Brixton in a black community where he doesn't know how to talk, he doesn't know how to walk, he doesn't know how to dress. Yeah, he finds himself yeah. in a completely alien environment and he's got to learn to assimilate. So right? rather than rather than the West Indian immigrant assimilating into Britain, yeah. it's his assimilation as someone born in Britain into the West Indian immigrant community. Mm. Which I thought was really interesting. And I'm so glad that we put on the subtitles for this one. Yes. <laughs> because we haven't for the first three and we didn't really think we needed them. But there were lines of dialogue that we missed here and there with the, uh, with the slang and that sort of thing. And this film is so heavy on the slang and on the accents that I think we we would have missed just about all of it um, had we not done that. So I'm glad we did. Mm. <laughs> we understood the film. I, I, I find uh, the film so interesting because so much of what we've been seeing is about, about discrimination and police brutality and injustice and, you know, about black men being uh, beaten up for no reason or being jailed or, yeah... And yet, you know, kind of, I was thinking, you know, why, why am I responding to this? Because, you know, it's usually not the kind of thing that I like. Not because, you know, I don't think it happens or, you know, uh, uh, it's just that it's, sometimes it feels like relentlessly grim, yeah, to, to be seeing, mm. yeah, all of these things for which there's no solution. So, and I was thinking, well, why, why, why am I enjoying this? Why isn't this bothering me in these instances throughout all of these small acts films and I think what the reason why is because each story is has a utopian dimension right or is so for example you know in jail there's a man who took an axe to the statuette or the confessor or something in protest who ends up in jail is going through a hunger strike right so you would think oh this is all terrible mm-hmm. right but on the other hand a it's funny right it's endearing, and then it's also like, so the message is that the solution that this man finds is in protest, right? So, you know, and it's also in education. So it's an interesting message, which actually reveals a, a further source of oppression and maybe a much deeper structural one, which is, you know, that these people don't even have a route to normal peaceful protest, yeah, and that education has to be grasped, you know, on the sideways, right? Yeah, mm. so, which I thought was kind of wonderful, because if you look at each character, it's almost like you could turn that around a bit, yeah. Mm. I, these are basically good people in jail, trying yeah. to find, you know, a solution to doing things that we all kind of, you know, most of us take for granted. Yeah. Yeah, on an everyday Absolutely. level. The education issue, especially, I mean, he has this a big speech towards the end of the film, extolling the virtues of education 
to Alex and saying like this is the solution this is what I talk about all the time education education and he has all these books and he says from this moment on all of these books are yours and they're books about black histories the one he says you should start with is this one about the black Jacobeans you know and it's just like learning a part of your history that you didn't know and it's not something that will be on any syllabus any curriculum Mm. and then of course for Alex that's also about his own personal past Mm. Uh, so the Rasta says you know if you don't know your past you won't know your future Mm. and he's talking in this general sense about black history but to Alex that also speaks very personally and the film ends with him requesting Mm. his case file from when he was in the in the sort of youth system and reading it on a bench and I mean I found it a kind of disappointing ending when they walk off the oh is that it and actually what I really liked was then it came up with the thing saying this is who Alex is now this is yeah he's written all these books and so Mm. on and I thought oh god this is how you know it kind of adds up Mm. like do you know what I mean that moment just sort of crystallised everything in the film is about saying like this is who this is where this guy comes from this is how he became this Mm. I think it's fantastic I think it's important maybe now to kind of think back in relation to the other films because they're all based on real incidents, aren't they? Right. Apart from Lover's Rock, which I think is completely fictional. Well, the other two are about I real people. I think the people. people might be fictional, but the event of those house parties and so on is not fictional. No, of course. In fact, yeah. you know, there's been debates about the accuracy of their representation and so on and so forth. So, so I think these are all slivers of a black history in Britain, often focusing on, you know, always focusing on either you know, real events or real people. Uh, and that kind of through that focus, yeah, uh, uh, you know, reveal a wider story, yeah, which I think, and so so it's all fragmentary. It's kind of, it's never like this monolithic, this was the history, you know. But actually through these incidents, like through the story of Alex or the mangrove or these parties or the policeman, yeah, you you begin to get kind of various histories, and they're all of a period, aren't they? I mean, what was the earliest? The uh, earliest, I think, was the first, which started in the late sixties and went into the early seventies. That's right, and this one is in the eighties mainly. Yeah, yeah. well, eighty one. Eighty one is the Brixton riot. That's um, that's right. So 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 most of it is just in that period before eighty one, mm. right? So that's all very interesting. I love the moment of uh, the protests which is done in photographs, mm. which are real photographs, and which are read through a poem that I don't know who it's by or who reads it. But that was like really a moment of, you know, of truth and beauty and, you know, of history. Well, not just seeping through, almost becoming the center of this, of this story, actually. You know, um, so which, which I, found, I found very original and potent. It's a poem called uh, New Cross Massacre written and read by Linton Quasi Johnson. Well, you know, I thought that was beautiful. I thought that was a really remarkable thing, actually. The film, the film turns into something else at that point. You yes. know, it's not, a, it's not about Alex's personal story yes. at this point. It's about the community, and it's about the importance and the scale. And the, like, you can imagine, like, with 40 years kind of in between, 40 years on from now, there'll be a similar poem. You know, we all, you can have a similar look back in the same way about Grenfell Tower. We will, for sure. Though, you know, I'm also... So I was going to say, the you know, one hopes things will have improved by then, and then <laughs> I'm thinking, well, they probably won't have, actually. <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I think one of the things that I do want to 
kind of just have as a sideline, really, as a sideline conversation. Because we have been having conversations with friends about, you know, is this, is this film, is this television? You know, and my answer to it, really, in a way, is I don't care. I mean, whatever it is, it's great. Yeah, like, kind of, mm-hmm. you know. I do think that there are things, like, so I was watching this today, and I was thinking, oh, how interesting, because I actually can't imagine this being done for a cinema. Right, mm. there was too much um, just talk, right, and kind of close-ups of talking heads, right, and there was a lot of dial. It was really mm-hmm. dialogue-heavy, you know. So I think you know you're thinking on the one hand, like, well, I can't imagine, you know, like any studio funding this for a cinema, right? <laughs> you know. And then you you you're looking at the screen ratio, and you think, well, you know, the BBC is taking care to show it to you in the proper ratio, which mm-hmm. leaves black space in the top and the bottom, which is not the normal thing for television, right? I have never seen a television show <laughs> boxed. Not a, not a TV show, no. I mean, Channel 4, when they show films, make sure to show them in the right aspect ratio. I know, I know. But, no, I'm, I'm saying, so, that's one aspect. But, but as for TV shows, I think occasionally, like, I've seen um, a bit of a TV show, like Top Gear every now and again, have done something in yeah, your yeah. film aspect ratio, but not not just a show that's made for TV, strong TV. You don't see that. Anyway, and to throw another spanner in the works, you know, I was reading this interview with Steve McQueen where he was saying, like, so on the one hand, how happy he is that this has, you know, been shown on television and has made such an impact on television, mm-hmm. you know, but the spang that it's not being shown on a big screen because right. I think it was meant to be shown on a big screen, right? Yeah. I thought it was conceived for TV. I think it was funded by television, commissioned by television, yeah, which is different than who the filmmakers made it for, whether they made it for a big screen presentation or not. Yeah, but I think I was reading that. Um, well, in my... the, I think very early on, because it's something like 10 years in the making since a conception. And I think early on in the conception, this kind of realisation occurred that this is a TV anthology. Well, I read this just yesterday or before yesterday that mm. actually that Steve McQueen felt a pang that it wasn't being shown on a big screen. We can look it up, I mean, but I don't think I'm wrong. Because it made an no, impression. No, you might not be wrong. Here we are. Um, this is this is from Wikipedia, as always, in the development section. It has been reported that Steve McQueen began working on the idea for Small Axe in 2010 and that some form of the series was in development since 2012, while the series was initially conceived as a conventional television series with a serialised story. McQueen realised during development that he had sufficient material to make several distinct films. And then it was announced a couple of years after that, 2014, that he would write and direct an untitled series for BBC One or BBC Two about the experience of black people in Britain. Right. Which is not to say that he can't also be <laughs> disappointed that it doesn't get the chance to be shown on a big yeah. screen, you know. Because it was, it was shown at the New York Film Festival, I think, mm. the whole all I think the, the I think series. These, uh, I think the first three, they no, have been shown got, on a big screen somewhere. Yeah, we've got fragments of information here. And I looked that up, yeah, the spang that, you know, these, these works will not have had a run in cinemas. So, so I don't know, yeah, and, and like I said, I mean, you know, for me, I don't care uh, in certain ways. I mean, I just think that it's great um, that we, you know, we have an opportunity to see them. I think, you know, in terms of issues around aesthetics, I do think, you know, that in trying to figure out what was done how, you know, the question of intent and where it was, you know, where, what it was meant for and so on, you know, might uh, bring in uh, interesting um, thoughts into the issues, yeah? Mm. Um, so I don't think that it's completely inconsequential, yeah, kind of these issues. Well, I think um, the issue about whether it's TV or film has this coded value judgment implicit yes. in it. 
Right. Yes. So basically, if it's TV, then it's valueless, and if it's film, then it's aesthetically yes. wonderful and pure, and all the rest of it. And I don't um, mean that at all. And that's the that's the thing that is annoying to sort of engage with. But the idea, but actually, the the effect of what what it kind of counts as is worth engaging with, right? So, like I was saying, the thing that I found so impressive about one or two of these films is that they have been made for TV and have been shown in a way that is free to access. Yes. You pay your licence for it. Yes. You know, this isn't something that you... I mean, okay, you choose to put it on TV or whatever, but this isn't something that you go out to see. This is something that is coming into your home. And I, and actually... And so there are things that are interesting to me as someone who admires McQueen and so on, because I do think that narratively these are tighter and more cogent than most of the work that I've seen of his. Mm. Yeah, and actually it might not be as condensed as some of the other works, but that could be a good thing. I, th- I think it is a good thing, you know, uh, in this. And also, there's not a loss of what you, what I call poetry. <laughs> mm. Yeah? Well, and in this case, literally a poem read over these photographs that then becomes, like, so powerful, you know, kind mm. of in the scheme of the narrative. I think he's doing things that are very, for me, unusual to see on television. I mean, that scene where... You know, the young man is is lying down or he's beaten down mm. and the camera moves in yeah, very slowly to a close-up of him and then it lingers and lingers and lingers and lingers and lingers and then it moves back, mm. right? This is when he's at school. Yeah. And, and they get into the fight because the white kid says racist shit to them about listening to black music. Yes. And then the fight starts and he's dragged out, yes. but um, Alex is. And I th- yeah, I mean, I noticed that. Like we've been talking about the length of shots being held, yes. and it's something that happens a lot less in this. I think this is the most televisual looking of the films we've seen. I agree, um, by uh, by quite a long way. But that is a moment where you have a lot of time to mm. to take in what you're seeing, and then it rhymes later. I think the payoff is that it rhymes later with when he's in the prison cell. Yes, because it's the same shot, it's the same pose, you know, yes. and it's like explicitly linking the treatment that he has as a young man to the treatment in the police system. Yes. Another thought, and, you know, again, it might just be of interest to me. He goes to Brixton, he's learning how to be black, mm. yeah? Or how to be black and British, yeah, <laughs> in Brixton. Because <laughs> obviously he's always been black, yeah, but but he's been acculturated as, you know, as a Sussex care home boy. So he's got to learn. Sorry, mm. yeah. So he's got to learn how to be how to be black. And you see all of these spaces where these kids learn to do that, mm. right? And the primary one is the record shop. Mm. Yeah? And, and actually, it really did make me think because, you know, I was thinking on the one hand, for people like myself, you know, there's all this nostalgia about the disappearance of places of sociability that kind of affected our own youth, right? You know, shops and discos and nightclubs and... Um, sports uh, centers, you know, so so I think with people of my generation, everything's expressed as kind of loss instead of what I think should be kind of a spark to curiosity, which is where are kids making these spaces of their own sociability now? Are they purely online? Uh, and, and if so, are there certain online things that are more important than others, like the record shop and the you know, the places of buying music, it isn't just a commercial exchange, it's a place of socialising, yeah? Mm. There's a lot more that happens online these days, it's got to be said. I mean, when I was his age, or maybe a bit younger, 
you know, you would hang around shops, you'd hang around the city centre, but it's not the same as, you know, I mean, obviously there's no record shop in yeah. my lifetime that's been as busy as the record shop you see here. Yes. You know. I mean, I would have thought that for your generation already, most everything would be online. <laughs> it was getting online, you know, when I was, when I was sort of in my teens, I guess. It was, the online world was developing a lot. Facebook, I guess, came in in, when I was maybe 15 or 16, mm. Twitter a little bit after that, and then, you know, you start to adopt it and get onto it. And now the thing is, the kids who are sort of a generation below me aren't on Facebook. It's for their parents. Yes. You know? So, like, the things that they do, I don't fucking understand. So things have sort of moved on even more. I really don't know if there are mm. so many physical spaces that you know, kind of kids, um, a generation younger than me, kind of meet up in. Maybe it is almost all online, especially now we've had six months or more of lockdown where it has to be mm. you know that's because yes. it's sort of speeding it up probably. Well, I think we're all online now you mm. know for everything yeah I mean I, I, I love the shot in the record shop that, that encapsulates that like everything happens here where he walks in, it's, it's the first time you see the record shop when he walks into it and it's new to him whatever and then the camera pans round and you see all the records and then he picks one up and it's six months later because he's talking to the guy he knows him. So mm. like, six months have passed, and it's and obviously it's all happened in the record shop. Mm. Kind of really sort of subtly encapsulates that this is the centre. Mm. Yeah. Um, and he says in prison, he says it's always about the music. It was like, when when yeah. he says, "How did you get here? What's your story?" It was always about the music. Yes. And, and and you know this music has been so important to the whole series. Yes. You know, like that record shop's shot is. It seems like a kind of centerpiece. It's not showy at all, but it's mm. just it says so much about what's important to this era and to these people. Yes, I mean, I think the question, I suppose, is then I would be very curious. I hope somebody does a study of you know of how are white British people responding to this, right? Because one of the last lines in it, which I thought was so interesting, he says, you know, like what's really important is class. Yeah, and what really has to be investigated is the question of class. Mm. Um, which I thought was kind of almost came out of nowhere, actually. And then it became so interesting. And then I thought, well, why does it seem to come out of nowhere? And the answer is because all the black people we see are working class or sub-proletariat. Yeah, even below working class. Right. So that's why the issue of class kind of doesn't uh, didn't quite register with me until, of course, it then did. Yeah. Mm. Oh. It did feel a little displaced, that speech. As much as I liked it, it did feel a little bit implanted, you know, to sort of... Do you know what I mean? To sort of say what, what felt important. And that I know kind of what you mean, but I also thought it was great, and I was yes. very grateful for it. I agree. Um, I agree with that. But, yeah, I mean, the thing about class is, like, Reg D. Hunter, who's an American black comic from Georgia who's been in the UK for something like 20 years, he said about class, he said... The thing about class is it's you, you've got advanced racism in the UK, he says. Mm. He said this on Have I Got News For You. So he's, like, he's talking to a predominantly white audience, really. So he's kind of, I don't know, maybe um, sugarcoating it a bit. But he's saying you have advanced racism here. Like you have, You're trying to have racism. You give it a good old go. But what you have is the class system, mm. which is how you discriminate against people who look like you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Who look like you. It's so foreign to me. And for a long time, I thought I could escape it because... You know, the thing about having the accent that I do is that people can't place it, right? Mm. Um, though, of course, what you don't realize is that there's all kinds of other giveaways, yeah? Where you shop, what you eat, where you go out. <laughs> like, yeah. everything is read through a prism of class rather than a choice, right? Because you mm. could say, I, ch- I could choose 
to shop here, right? Like, but no, it's kind of it's never read as a choice, which I think also is a sign of how coercive, you know, this class dimension in British culture is. Mm. That you know, kind of where you shop is not perceived as a choice; it's perceived as what you're able to do. And then, if you were able to shop at Waitrose, why would you ever shop at Aldi? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Russell Kane, who's a comedian from Essex, said that, because um, you can hear it in his voice, he's got an Essex accent and stuff, and he says the thing about the Essex accent that people really object to is that it has this kind of wide, round sort of noise in the middle of a sentence, but at the end it's always pinched off. And so it sounds like a thick person trying to sound smart. Uh-huh. And he says people can hear it. And he says within... thing is, you meet someone, and from just hearing someone's voice in this country, within five seconds you've made a judgment on where they're from, what their class is, how much money they make, where they live, who they, you know, everything, like, it's it's really powerful here. (laughs) And I think something that you see in this film, because everyone is, everyone hears it in his voice, you know, that he's not from around there. And and they take, you know, sometimes they take it as a laugh, and they say, oh, we've got to teach this boy, like, who is this boy? You know, all the the, the stuff that happens in the barbershop, first time he goes to the barbershop, and they go, who the hell is this? Because he doesn't know anything about what they're talking about, he doesn't know what Babylon is. You know, and they explain to him, like, Babylon is the system, it's mm. the man, you know, like, you got, you got, who are you? And the barbershop, the the, um, the, uh, the hairdresser becomes um, quite aggressive with him. Like, it starts off as a joke, and then by the end he's shouting in his ear, like, who the fuck are you? Mm. Which, again, is very coercive, right? Like, so, I mean, there's this kind of balancing thing of what do you have to do to get by... And, you know, what is the element of choice within that? Like, how different can you be? Because mm. actually, if you twi- twist things around, you know, this film also shows what a coercive thing that is, that you've got to speak like this, you've got to use this language, you've got to dress like this, you've got to walk like this, or you're fucked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, so actually there's a tendency in the film to see that as a liberatory thing that he's found his people and himself and his culture. But actually, that can be read as really quite coercive because if he doesn't uh, obey, you know, or conform to that way of being, of walking, of dressing or whatever, yeah. I mean, ultimately what the film sort of ended up saying to me was he only finds himself right at the very end when he goes back to that file. Yes. And then in the in the text that follows that up right at the end, mm. it says he reunited with his mother and father and family in Jamaica and America. Mm. And like that is, you know, kind of where he's able to find himself because it's very clear up until that point there's there's this discomfort when he's young that he you know, he, he doesn't have parents. He's growing up in an orphanage, and he's he, you know this woman, this he's white, abused, woman, yeah. this white woman who abuses him, who kind of runs the house, is he, he calls aunt, and of course she's not his aunt biologically. So you know he's displaced there, and then he gets to Brixton, and he's immediately displaced there. And even though he assimilates very convincingly, you never get the feeling that that's who he is. Mm. You know, and the accent always slips, and mm. he's not the only one whose accent slips. I think the girl Dawn who's in the same house as him, like her accent kind of switches from mm. time to time. You get the feeling that this is something that is not unique to him. Mm. You know, mm. but Though it's an interesting experience that, that I don't think I've seen represented before. We talked about in uh, Lover's Rock, where the guy, Frank or Franklin, is speaking with a West Indian accent the whole time, and then he goes to work, and his boss shows up, yes, and he's speaking with a Cockney yes, accent, yes. and we talk there about the switch. But here, what you see is, is, is a development from one to the other, and actually in slightly different circumstances, why that switch happens and how that development happens, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yes. 
you know, what did the, you make of the family scene? The scene where Christmas was it Christmas? Yeah, I, wasn't it? Because he says, because okay. he says, I never liked Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that. okay, okay. Yeah, and yeah. he says, you're going to come to my Christmas. You're going to see my family. And then once he's, you know, kind of been coerced into agreeing. Dennis, his mate, says, and by the way, my family are a bit full on. Like, that's what someone always says when they're going to have Christmas with their family. Mm. Is, oh, they're a bit full on, by the way. Mm. But only after he's agreed to come. Mm. Yeah, and he has this kind of uncomfortable time there. And immediately it's kind of obvious that that he would never have liked Christmas because it is about the family and friends and the, and the people who are a part of your life. And he'd never seemed to really have anyone like that. Yes. I mean, I, you're wondering... What's the point of that scene? And the point is to show his lack. Mm. You know, that it's something he's never had before. And there's quite an ease and a pleasure and so on in seeing, like, the family gather together. And, you know, you get a, a, there's a, a sense of texture. And, of course, it culminates in the punctuation point of him eating so fast. Yeah, as people do when they think there's not going to be enough or that the food is going to be taken away from them. Yeah, he just, like, gobbles it all. Mm. Right. But then the scene is left kind of hanging. Then, it, yeah, the next yeah. cut, you you see him outside then, yeah? Yeah. So he's gobbling up the food. So, which seems to me not to have quite the payoff that I would have expected. No, I know what you mean. Anyway, this is my least favorite of the films we've seen so far. Though, you know, I think it's still pretty great. You know? So, again, just a measure of, you know, how uh, good the different episodes have been. Mm. Um and I might change my mind once I think about it some, some more because we are talking about it immediately after seeing it. But it seemed to me kind of that this, this was not quite up to the level of the others, that it felt more conventional, you know, mm. still moving and still with moments of beauty and poetry, but you know, kind of more pedestrian. I think it's the least interesting to look at and to watch. Um, it has... I don't think it has the least interesting story, but it has the least interesting writing, mm. I think. Well, that's you know, I a think, very good distinction. Yes. I think the story is really... Because um, I've got this quote here from Stephen Queen talking about where the story came from, and Alex Wheatle was in the writer's room when they were developing Small Axe. Uh, so he says, um, Early on in our writer's room, Alex touched upon his past. It soon became apparent to me that his story had to be a feature film. And then uh, the co-writer, Alistair Siddons, says... Alex is a world-class novelist in his own right, but the Brixton Bard is also a very generous, humble and funny human being. I loved him as soon as I met him in the writer's room, where his wealth of knowledge and experience, as well as his fantastic kung fu dancing, played a huge role in shaping all the films we were working on. I'll never forget the day he shared his own life story about growing up in care, but when Alex shared his unbelievably callous social services file, it broke all of our hearts. Steve very quickly decided that Alex Wheatle was to become part of the Small Act series, and I was genuinely thrilled to be given the opportunity to write co-write the script with Steve uh-huh. so he was in the writer's room and, he, and his, his real experience and real story came out in there and it was decided mm. they would make this, make this film out of it and how interesting is there's very little about the care actually so, so it seems from what you say that what excited uh, uh, Steve McQueen most was the story about this very moving story about the, the, you know, the social care that he received uh, was actually you know, that's just like the first five or ten minutes of the film and it shows this kind of abuse and coldness and, mm. you know, so it shows the damage of it. Actually, it doesn't linger. Yeah, it kind of it moves on. The centre of this story is Brixton. Yeah, it is. It, 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 yeah, I think from that quote, it suggests that the social services file was the kind of catalyst mm. that seemed to kind of grab everyone. And the film does end with that as well. So it is, you know, it is central to it, I think. And like sure, I said, okay. it's central to his... Um, his sense of identity and and the idea that you know, he all comes back to that thing of 
um, knowing your past. And for him, that's a much more personal thing than um, it is for, I guess, pretty much anyone else we've seen in the film. Uh-huh. Everyone else we've seen in the film, knowing your past is about culture mm. and you know your people. And him, it's about his mum and dad. Mm. Um, mm. But I do, I do wonder. I do think that um, I think there is a a more engaging film to be made about that story. It doesn't feel like this nails it, though. It's interesting. Yeah, though I think it's still pretty great, though. You know, so I'm very glad we saw it, uh, and I can't recommend it enough, actually. And I think the next one will draw on um, Steve McQueen's experiences as a child. Next one's education, ah. and I was reading a profile recently that I think was from 2014. It was around the release of. 12 Years a Slave where Steve McQueen was being asked about his past it was a profile in The Guardian and he was kind of I guess seen reticent to talk about it about kind of treatment at school and things and then the the, the, the interviewer the profiler says later that night or the next day I got a phone call and it was Steve McQueen saying you know we really should get to the bottom of this so there's obviously kind of something in there so I'm interested to see that one because I right, well, think that we'll kind of draw on that. Uh, let's do that now. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we highly recommend uh, that you see Alex Weedle. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.